Today at Reader's Corner, Isaac Stone Fish, author of America Second, How America's Elites Are Making China Stronger. I'm Bob Custer. Welcome to Reader's Corner. The past few years have seen a seismic shift in relations between China and the United States. From eager economic partners to wary frenemies to open rivals. What happened? In America Second, Isaac Stone Fish traces the evolution of the Chinese Communist Party's influence in America. He reveals how America's leaders initially welcomed China's entry into the U.S. economy, believing that trade and engagement would lead to a more democratic China. But this hasn't been the case. In his book, Fish explains how many of America's business leaders and politicians have become too dependent on China to challenge it. Isaac Stone Fish is the founder and CEO of the research firm Strategy Risks, which quantifies corporate exposure to China. He is a Washington Post Global Opinions contributing columnist, a contributor to CBSN, and an adjunct at NYU's Center for Global Affairs. Isaac Stonefish, welcome to Reader's Corner. Thank you for having me, Bob. I appreciate it. Well, Isaac, as I was telling you before we went on the air, I, I really enjoyed your book, and I learned a great deal. Even though we've done books on China, we've never really done one that has such a a great American perspective, what's going on over here in relation to that incredible uh, nation these days. Um, and I want to start by uh, repeating something you say at least once in your book, uh, if not more, and that is that this book is really not critical or a critique of the Chinese people or Chinese Americans. It's really focused on the Chinese Communist Party and those here in the United States who are aiding and abetting it. I wonder if you could give us an idea what that does to the career of a guy like you. You make the point in the in the initial part of the book that at least prior to COVID, you had a visa into China, even though you were probably recognized by them as a critic. Um, this book's pretty tough on China. Can you still get a visa? <laughs> Thanks, Bob. I don't know. And the unpredictability of Beijing is a feature of that yeah. system rather than a bug. It's possible that I'd still get a visa. Yeah. It's possible that I'd be put with open arms. It's possible that I'd be arrested. And it's the unpredictability and the risk, but also the message that me returning would send. I, I think in terms of what it's done to my career, I mean, it has been positive for me. I, I've pivoted away from a career dependent on positive relationships with the party to negative relationships with the party. And I think that point about Chinese and Chinese and Americans, it's really important for us to understand that Beijing has so many more levers over Chinese people than it does over non-Chinese people. And so I'm a lot safer in saying these things than a lot of my peers. Right, right. Well, let's get right to the book. You can share with our listeners, what is Disney, LeBron James, Henry Kissinger, Jimmy Carter, and even the former mayor, Richard M. Daly of Chicago, all have in common? <laughs> all at one time or another been friends of China. And friends of China is a technical term. It's not, oh, great, let's have peace and harmony among peoples around the world. Friend of China is the Communist Party term for folks or institutions who advocate for the party, bring up positive information and suppress negative information. And all of those individuals and entities that you just listed have done that. Uh, some have changed. They've gotten more critical over the last several years, but some 
like Kissinger, like Disney, haven't really changed. Well, let's talk about Kissinger for a moment, because uh, Kissinger, you, you've expanded on the role that he has played in China and in America. Uh, you call him, quote, an agent of Chinese influence. Give us some idea of just what that has meant over the years for Kissinger's relationship to China. For so long, Kissinger has been a businessman masquerading as a politician. Since starting his consulting company, Kissinger Associates, in 1982, Kissinger has made probably tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars from his engagements and his relationships with China and the Chinese Communist Party. And the way it works is he will say positive things about China and the Chinese relationship. And in exchange, he'll maintain access to the highest levels of the Communist Party. And then American businesses, but also businesses from other parts of the world and businesses in China will hire him to take advantage of that access. What's the difference between Washington and Beijing's views when it comes to intelligence gathering? Uh, Who do they use over here? It's a great question. There's a broader sense in Beijing that you can pick up a lot of information from a lot of different people. And I'd wonder, probably depends on who you ask in Beijing and how much they're sharing, but sometimes that's not even seen as intelligence gathering. It's just seen as normal course of business. Well, of course, we need to know what these people are thinking or doing. I think the other thing to realize is China, especially over the last several years, has become far more opaque than it was before. So Beijing needs to gather information that might, in a more open society, be things reported by the press or discussed freely online. But Beijing wants to, in as much as possible, monopolize that information and gather it its own way through journalists, through diplomats, through students, through business people, and through others, Mm -hmm. both American and Chinese. So I heard an interesting conversation the other day uh, between Frank Faluzzi, who does this uh, podcast. He's a former FBI agent. He was talking with Holden Triplett, who is also a former FBI agent and just came back from China a couple of years ago where he was stationed. And he makes the distinction uh, in that in America, the CIA is not spending time trying to get inside Chinese companies, uh, but in China – uh, very definitely their intelligence services are focused not only on the state, whether it's the United States or somebody else, but also on private business, intellectual property. Let's see what we can steal. Is that a safe distinction to make? I think it is. And another distinction I'd make is Chinese intelligence services swear their loyalty to the Communist Party and serve the party first and China second often a far second. And that's a really important distinction from our far less politicized intelligence services. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about the World Trade Organization. How did American businesses help China get into the WTO? Uh, Many would agree that it's responsible for heavy job loss in America. There were uh, certain conditions attached to China's entry into the WTO. And as I understand it, uh, they just didn't pay too much attention to some of those, and their state-operated uh, uh, enterprises, for example, have uh, enormous advantage over American companies. Um, and I mentioned in the in the introduction that, uh, of course, uh, 
You had Clinton claiming that we were going to democratize China by getting them uh, as a trading partner. But more importantly, I want to focus on what was going on with American businesses and the campaign to get China into the WTO. That was a lot of money that was spent, as I understand it. It's a lot of money. The belief in the 90s was that free trade would liberalize China and democratize China. Seemed like a great idea at the time. Certainly didn't happen that way. And many American businesses lobbied for China to join the WTO and served as agents of Beijing, lobbied for them very explicitly. And the idea was, well, we're going to do this both because we believe it's in America's best interest, but also because we believe it's in Boeing's best interest, for example, to cite one. And there was this widespread view that trade would just be really win-win. Globalization was the order of the day, and we were at the end of history. And so much that happened in the 21st century has disproven those notions. Mm -hmm. The focus with 9-11, another part of the world, the financial crisis, the increasing wealth gap in the United States, uh, a lot of those things interplay or caused the rupture with China or our cause of it. You know, when I served in public office in the 90s, the Republican Party particularly was having a love affair with Taiwan. Uh, I mean, they were every time you turn around, uh, Republicans were going over in delegations uh, to declare their commitment to Taiwan. And today, of course, Democrats and Republicans are doing that. But uh, I want to ask the question about that moment in, in recent history after 9-11 uh, when President George W. Bush uh, wanted China's support uh, in the war against terrorism. He came out on Taiwan all right, but uh, not like the Republicans I had heard in my past. Yeah, he just came out all right. It's a striking departure from April 2001, the spy plane crash, the first crisis of the first Bush administration, and what might have led to us addressing the China problem much earlier. But instead, 9-11, that quirk of history, Jiang Zemin, who was the Chinese chairman at the time, was one of the first, not the first foreign leaders to call Bush to offer his condolences, to talk about how much he was going to be a partner in the war on terror, which for China mostly meant fracking down on Muslim separatists in Xinjiang, a region which today they've increased that crackdown to a genocide. And so we had so many pivots in history in 2001 because of 9-11 and the improving of the U.S.-China relationship in ways that would later end up hurting you know, many American workers and many American interests is one of them. You're listening to Isaac Stone Fish. He's the author of America Second, How America's Elites Are Making China Stronger. What's the Dalai Lama effect as far as U.S. and China relations are concerned? The Dalai Lama effect is something coined by two scholars to look at the reduce in exports from a country after their leader met with the Dalai Lama. And it shows the control that Beijing has over its state-owned enterprises and the way that Beijing doesn't just politicize trade. Trade is politics and politics is trade. There's no way of separating those two entities. 
And it's very important for anyone who does business with China or just wants to be aware of the situation to understand that there's no such thing as depoliticizing the relationship or keeping politics out of it. It's intensely political and has to be because that's what the party requires. Was it uh, Lithuania that recently kind of stepped out of uh, the ranks and uh, had some critical things to say up to your point here? I think they'll suffer from that. It's been nice to see Lithuania standing up. The mayor of Prague and the Czech Republic has stood up. There have been some officials and former officials around the world who've spoken out very critically on China. We do have to remember, though, they will speak out in defense of Taiwan, but so far, none of them have taken the step of re-recognizing Taiwan. So right now, only just a little bit more than a dozen countries recognize Taiwan as an independent nation. Even the United States doesn't recognize Taiwan in that way. So if we want to see a real shift, which we do, (laughs) but if we are seeing a real shift, it'll be because someone recognizes Taiwan. So our moviegoers listening may be surprised to know that AMC theaters that they've uh, visited over the years uh, were purchased by a Chinese multinational. And uh, in this particular case, there were actually some presidents involved. And I don't remember the specifics, uh, Isaac, but you can fill us in uh, during the Obama years and even the Trump years. They were. So Wang Jianlin, a Chinese billionaire and head of a massive Chinese conglomerate called Wanda, purchased AMC at a time that he was attempting to conquer Hollywood. He's He's since stepped back from a lot of these dreams. But there was something that didn't smell quite right about that deal when it happened. And I I reported uh, back when I was a reporter that Gary Locke, the erstwhile U.S. ambassador to China, former commerce secretary, um, had approved of that deal while ambassador and then later went on to serve on the board of Wanda AMC. And a lot of what I talk about in the book is this revolving door this interplay between business and politics in the United States and the way that Beijing encourages this form of corruption to increase its influence in the United States. Yeah. So let's talk about the influence of the Chinese Communist Party in Hollywood. You just mentioned that. Uh, Is it going too far to say that the party has veto power over films at the major studios? No, I don't think it is. And I I think it's gotten even worse than that. In so many times, questions just don't get asked. It's less about censorship and more about self-censorship. Over a period, Beijing successfully taught Hollywood how to censor on behalf of the party and how to internalize the sentiments of the Chinese Communist Party to put out content that Beijing would approve of. And it's not just the fear that a certain movie wouldn't get screened in China. It's the fear that if Sony or Fox or Disney put out a film that Beijing disapproved of, they would punish other parts of the business. So let's talk about a few of those. Give us an example or two of how China edits films. Uh, Casino Royal uh, comes to mind. I'm a James Bond uh, fan, so... That was certainly interesting. And and then when it comes to outright banning, films like Brokeback Mountain. Yeah, the, the, the thing that Beijing is most concerned with is portrayals of China in films. 
So there was a, a Mission Impossible from about 15 years ago where they removed scenes of people drying their laundry in Shanghai to not make the city look backward. There's a film called Looper about 10 years ago where they made sure for China to be this very pleasant future as opposed to a dystopian America. Um, the, oh gosh, Dame Judi Dench. She, there was a, to- a line in one of the Bond films where she said, God, I miss the Cold War. And Beijing complained about that because that was seen as nostalgic for a time when Beijing and communism could be on the other side of the aisle to the United States. And so they changed it to, God, I miss the old times. It's these very little things that don't seem to matter to an American audience, but Beijing decided to make an issue of, and they taught Hollywood studios well. And it's very sad to see in an industry that's very proud of its commitments to representation that it functions to really pervert the portrayal of Chinese people in films because it's too afraid of having real Chinese characters. So you have these cardboard cutouts in Hollywood movies who don't actually portray Chinese people as they are with faults and foibles like humans the world over. Could you also explain the Chinese Communist Party's approach to the actors themselves, the, the, the light-skinned issue? Yes. So there's pretty systemic racism in China against darker-skinned people. Um, you know, Black people in China often report uh, being treated, in many cases, quite worse than they get treated in the United States uh, in, in terms of how Chinese people view them. And there's a lot, uh, a pretty common sentiment among Chinese tastemakers that Chinese audiences don't want to see dark-skinned people or prefer to see lighter-skinned people in various roles. And so that's what you get. And there was a academic who argued that Beijing's preference for lighter-skinned roles was actually one of the factors causing the Oscar so white or Hollywood's preference for lighter actors was their desire to please Beijing. You know, one of the factors contributing to that in Hollywood. Yeah. Well, you'd think that the African-American a- a- actors and actresses who have really pressured Hollywood on the diversity issue would catch on to this one as well. And apparently they have, but uh, we need to do a lot more in those areas. Agreed. Very much agreed. Yeah. So, Disney hires Kissinger to make nice with China. Uh, How does that work? What what did they do? What did they do with Kissinger? So in the year 1997, studios released three movies that Beijing decided to find critical. And Beijing, instead of just complaining, instead of trying to release its own propaganda, tried that too, but not nearly effective. They realized, ah, what we should do is ban these studios and force them to do a self-criticism this communist idea of you know admitting your faults and saying that you know what you did was wrong as a part of ideological work ideological education to train you and to be being a better friend of china and so as part of disney's process of ideological work of rectification they hired kissinger and kissinger associates to be their guide to figure out how they could work more closely with the Chinese Communist Party. As far as actors are concerned, uh, Richard Gere sure paid a heavy price, didn't he? He did. He was 
one of the few, there's only a handful of prominent actors who have been so steadfast in their support for Tibet. And Richard Gere's career almost certainly withered as a direct response to all of his support for the Tibetans and their plight. So when it comes to the influence that the Chinese Communist Party has on the major studios, I wonder whether or not that spills over to the independents. We have a a theater here in town called The Flicks, which shows some great independent films. And can can I assume that the independents are a bit freer? Uh, Maybe they don't consider a global market the way the major studios do. I don't know. But um, what's your take on that? They're better, but they still want to get distribution deals with Netflix or Amazon or Apple, these major global corporations that have large exposures to China. Where it's very different, and fascinatingly so, is in television. Television feels quite comfortable being very critical of the Chinese Communist Party. I was just watching a Family Guy episode from about a year and a half ago, where the little baby buys a panda that steals Americans' credit card information from China, a Chinese panda. This is a crude gag, but a gag nonetheless, (laughs) and a gag that they felt comfortable going after. Cannot imagine that in a film. You are listening to Isaac Stonefish. He's the author of America Second, How America's Elites Are Making China Stronger. So let's shift our emphasis here to the universities who get caught up in China's global censorship regime. Share with our listeners what the three T's are and how do they sometimes mask what really concerns Chinese leaders? The three T's are Tibet, Taiwan, and Tiananmen Square, the site of the eponymous massacre in 1989. And I studied Chinese in college. I lived in Beijing for six years. When I was there, Both Chinese and American educators taught me that those were the areas that were taboo. But it masks this much greater issue of who deserves to rule China? Does the Chinese Communist Party deserve to rule? How do we talk about high-level corruption? How do we talk about what, what the party is and should be and what it shouldn't be? And it took me a long time to realize, as someone who grew up in this environment, that the issue wasn't, hey, he said Taiwan, therefore he's saying something politically sensitive. The party talks about Taiwan and Tibet and Tiananmen all the time. It just does so under a certain narrative. And so the taboo is not, hey, I mentioned Tibet. The taboo is saying, should Tibet be independent? What kind of colonizing or crimes or brainwashing is the party doing in Tibet? And how should we talk or think about that? And I think you say in your your book that uh, scholars have to walk a fine line. Uh, For example, if you're going to get out there and predict that she is going to fall from power, uh, that's probably not something the party wants to hear. She certainly doesn't want to hear it. (laughs) He doesn't. It's a difficult act because scholars do better research when they can go to China. But scholars can't go to China if they act in ways that the party might not like. So you have this giant structure built up that facilitates censorship and self-censorship and studying of topics that the party deems as less sensitive. And it just worsens the quality of the information on China and it worsens the quality of the discourse. Mm -hmm. It's quite sad to see and also does a disservice to the Chinese students coming here who want to have a more objective or comprehensive or, or nuanced approach to China 
but instead find their professors or their peers self-censoring. And you don't uh, accept yourself from this self-censorship issue, Isaac. Uh, you point out in the book that, uh, you know, it's, it's sometimes tough avoiding challenging China, and it's sometimes a matter of maybe what you don't bring up or what you don't pursue. Share, share with I, us what that's like. Yes, I, I still self-censor all the time. It's something, sometimes I do it and I think, oh, this makes me feel gross. And sometimes I do it and I feel like, oh, this was the right decision. It's case by case. The instances I refer to in the book refer to when I was a journalist and reporting on stories that I felt were too sensitive or I didn't want to go after certain people or certain institutions because I was afraid of retribution or I was afraid of offending someone. And, you know, since I finished the book, it's been about two plus years now, and my career has shifted and I now run a, a, a research consulting company. We do a lot of data work with companies. And so my self-censorship now is much less about not going after the Communist Party, but not going after clients or potential clients. Mm. I, I want to make very sure to not position myself as some disinterested arbiter. I have financial implications and ties that make what I say suspect. And I think it's really important when we're talking about these issues to understand where people are coming from, to understand who has what type of claim to objectivity someone has. And for us, both internally and externally, being open to our blind spots and open to the areas that we're censoring or self-censoring. You uh, quote Napoleon on China at the close of your book, and then that leads to your discussion of how should the U.S. deal with China in the coming years. Share that with us. There's this old quote, essentially apocryphally attributed to Napoleon about uh, China being a, a sleeping dragon and whether or not you poke it and it shall wake. And we're in this fascinating and devastating time right now that I call a pre-war period. We've had two world wars. It's very unlikely that World War II was the last global war. It's very unlikely the next global war won't see the U.S. and China on opposing sides. And so you know, with those historical assertions in mind, what should the U.S. do with China and how should the U.S. defend the rights of Chinese and Chinese Americans? And these are very, very difficult issues, but some of the solutions are you know, very vanilla, but I think very important. And it's just it's about communicating with Americans the difference between China and the Chinese Communist Party and working to de-risk and reduce the exposure to China because if we are in a war, economic realities will be upturned and trillions of dollars will be written off balance sheets. And I think we're pricing those possibilities as much lower than they actually are. Well, just recently, uh, we, we had a moment here in Boise, Idaho, which is the headquarters of Micron Technology, uh, where mm. the Chinese government came down pretty hard on Micron. And, of course, they're fighting back, and I think they're going to do well. But I wonder, uh, that's something that happened after you wrote your book, but uh, how does that fit into your analysis here? I think it's a really important phenomena, and I addressed some of the earlier incarnations of that in my book, where 
Beijing punishes individual companies for the perceived sins of their government. Micron being a, a U.S. company, a U.S. headquartered company, is one of the main reasons that it got punished. And what Beijing wants Micron to do is hire someone like Henry Kissinger to teach them how to appease the Communist Party. And I hope Micron doesn't do that. <laughs> well, we'll watch for that for sure. So you close. <laughs> exactly well. Yeah, really. You close on a very interesting note uh, about making sure that our campaign or our efforts uh, to crack down on these American elites who have somehow gotten way too close to the Communist Party in China um, doesn't turn into racism, that we, we want to make sure that we steer clear especially of what's been happening recently in America uh, with uh, Asian Americans being targeted. I wonder if you could maybe close for us with some thoughts on just how to do that and, and what, what will keep people safe in this country. And thank you for bringing that up. I'm, I'm very worried about widespread discrimination against Chinese and Chinese Americans. I want to make two points there. One is that regardless of what we do, uh, the real threat to Chinese businesses and Chinese individuals is the Communist Party. And there are millions, if not more, of Chinese people who feel that way uh, and have real trouble expressing it for a variety of reasons. But the second is we have a horrid history and a pretty checkered present of the way we treat minorities, especially those in governments that, you know, are enemies of the United States as, as China is becoming. We were horrific towards Japanese and Japanese Americans during World War II. And we need to have a national debate and set up ethical standards and set up operating procedures now um, so that we can talk about this when we can have rational conversations about enemy work and enemy nations. We have a terrible record of doing that during wartime because national security often trumps reality or emotional reality. And so I really want us to figure out that two things are true at once. One, we will likely at some point in the near future go to war with China. And two, we'll be far more successful in that war both as a fighting nation and as a moral nation, if we protect Chinese people and if we protect Chinese Americans and, and treat them as well as we treat other Americans. So I assume that uh, a couple of years has gone by since you actually had to submit uh, your book to the to the printer and, and get the rough drafts and all of the business. Uh, lots has changed since then in terms of uh, China-American relations. If you had an opportunity in a paperback version to – uh, do a new forward or something. Has anything changed that you'd write about? Gosh, so much has changed. And it's, uh, I think I submitted my final draft of the book six to nine months before the book came out. And then yeah. you just cross your fingers and hope nothing changes in the world. But <laughs> so much has changed uh, with Trump, with the Republican Party, with worsening tensions with COVID. And so much of what I've written about has gotten worse, but there's also been a general awakening among American people of the problems of relying on the Chinese Communist Party. So we have started a certain type of decoupling, and I think a lot of the actions so far have been healthy 
for American interests and arguably for Chinese interests as well. But I, I think if I had the opportunity to write a forward to a new edition, I would focus more on the tensions now and on this possibility of war and how to think about it and how to try to have ethical conversations around it. Great. Well, thank you very much, uh, Isaac. I appreciate your coming on to Reader's Corner. This is a uh, a book that deserves to be read by anybody who cares about the future of China-U.S. relations. Uh, Again, the name of the book, America Second, How America's Elites Are Making China Stronger. The author is Isaac Stonefish. Isaac, thanks so much for joining us today at Reader's Corner. Thanks so much for having me. Reader's Corner is presented by Boise State Public Radio News. The engineer for today's show is Eric Jones, with production by Joel Wayne. I'm Bob Kustra. Please join me next week as we talk to today's leading writers about the ideas and issues that help shape our world at Reader's Corner. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now, we're taking center stage. Introducing NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of Black-led stories from NPR's podcasts. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts.